we're profiling Neil Murray, and he's going to talk about his life in music, his life travelling to the north, why he went to the north. On ABC Radio, you're with Trevor Chappell. As a farmer's son from Victoria, he went up to the Northern Territory. Why did he go there? We'll find out. Joining us on the program is Neil Murray, singer, songwriter. Uh, good morning, Neil. Morning, Trevor. Hey, Neil, we, can we just start by talking about the Warumpi Band? And we'll come back to um, talking about your new album, which I listened to the other day, which is really good, and a couple of texts saying how good it is as well. But firstly, that song, My Island Home, how did that come about? Um, <clears throat> came to me on a bus travelling between uh, Melbourne and Sydney one night in... Um June 1985, and I just we just completed our tour for the Big Name No Blankets album, and then we did get to the top end, and I finally got to see George's lead singer's home at Gallowinku, and we'd spent four or five days living like kings off the land and the sea on a remote part of the island. It was, um, you know, like some kind of paradise I experienced. And um, I guess I was missing my own home country too, having lived in the centre of five or six years as well, the same time as as GR. And um, it just came to me on the, about three in the morning, this strong, insistent melody of and the words, my old home is waiting for me. And I just felt I needed to write it for him to sing because um, we needed more songs that he'd really get his teeth into it. So I, I did a demo and presented it to him uh, about a month later and got back to Alice and he just said, that's it, that's number one, that's talking about my life and... He took it, and that's you know the rest is history. I guess I was doing, I was reading, um, and about some people talking about George, and they were saying how he's probably one of the most underrated lead singers that there's been in Australia. Uh, well, I don't know who's doing the rating, but um, I think um, with him as a front man, <laughs> it's a big advantage because he he could certainly win over the crowd and. Um, he was the tip of the spear for us. He could deliver those messages, and um, yeah, no, he's he is still missed. And uh, yeah, what can I say? Um, I, I was just glad to have the opportunity to be in a band with him and Sammy and the others, and, and we and we did. We had a small window of opportunity, and we we did our best. And yeah, and uh, certainly, you know, I think we 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 made the the country set up and take notice. Yeah. Hey, Neil, what was it that took you to the Northern Territory? Because you're coming off a farm in Victoria. What took you to the Territory? Oh, well, I, I just had a, a calling, if you might say. I was trying to find Aboriginal people. and it, it, I didn't really know any around the area where I was born and raised. That was something I discovered later in life. But um, I just had this idea they're all up north, and I especially wanted to go somewhere where, where the, the language was still spoken and their, their law was intact. And so I <clears throat> ended up at Papunya. And uh, as Sammy Butcher said, you came to the right place. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you have a, were you playing music or were you interested in music before you went? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been writing songs since about 1975. And I first visited Papunya in 79, then started work there in 1980. And I had a guitar with me and, I hadn't been there a week and uh, and knock on the door of my flat and open the door and here's this young uh, young fella, handsome looking bloke and um, 
He said, you got a guitar? I said, yeah. He said, show me. So I showed him the guitar, and boy, could he play. That was Sammy Butcher, and we, we had to jam then. We, we just uh, yeah jammed, and his brothers and other young fellas gathered around us, and uh, we we started playing, and we played anything we knew, covers, whatever. And I tried a few originals that I had that didn't quite work, but um, we soon started writing songs, and then um, the skinny fellow from the top end turned up, <laughs> married Married Sammy's sister. He turned up in Papunya four or five months later, so we had our front man, and we were we were set. Away we went. Yeah. The what were what were you playing when you first started? What sort of covers were you playing? Oh, a lot of basic rock and roll, Chuck Berry stuff, uh, Beatles stuff, and well, a bit of Akadaka and and country stuff too, because country music was pretty pretty popular there. Um. Yeah, but um, you know, I sort of lean towards the more of the rock stuff. We were doing, uh, you know, um, but then and, and and the good thing about when George turned up, he he was love he loved rock too. So we were doing uh, little Richard stuff and and um, you know, ACDCs, the Stones, Beatles stuff, and Chuck Berry was big big influence. Yeah. Where did you play? So what sort of gigs were you doing at that time? Oh, just community gigs, playing at the local town hall in Papunya and uh, nearby communities. Gradually, we graduated into pubs in Alice Springs. <laughs> it was pretty chaotic. <laughs> and then we went further afield. We went north to the Kimberleys and so forth. We played up in the Kimberleys and around, you know, through Fitzroy Crossing, Derby and Broome and every place. But even before we went to Sydney, we first went to Sydney in 83 and played in the city. Yeah, and we had, you know, had a few couple of originals by then. We had Jalen or Pocono, which Sammy and I wrote in about 15 minutes, which became our first single. Was that, that was a in big, language, of course. Was yeah. that a big move, having your first single sung in language? Uh, well, it was in hindsight, yeah. It was, a, it was a small revolution because it was the first commercially released seven-inch pop rock single sung in an Indigenous language of this continent. But we just, you know, we felt it was important because we wanted to uh, speak to the people and the inference is, you know, the incarceration rates are wildly disproportionate in this country still. And every, every I haven't met an Aboriginal person that has, hasn't had some experience with jail, so it was a, almost a rite of passage for young fellas to spend a bit of time in jail for petty offences and often they learnt to play guitar or improve their English in jail or whatever, but... There was no stigma attached to it up there, but but it's a happy song about getting out of jail and, and leaving jail for good and sort of saying you're going to sit down and do the right thing now, <laughs> no more fighting and stuff, you know. And it was just a common experience and it was, um, you know, a little catchy sort of, we wanted the kids, kids were singing, you know, Beatles songs. We thought well, they should be singing some songs in language, you know. So uh, we did it. What I might do, I might play a little bit of it for people who haven't heard it. I'm sure many people have, but I just might play a little bit so that people get an understanding of what we're talking about. Actually, when you listen to it again, Neil, it is real rock and roll too. It's got a real rock and roll sound to it. 
Yeah, it's got that early kind of rock and roll feel to it, blues, rock, yeah, whatever, yeah, rockabilly. Yeah. How did community feel about hearing songs for the in language for the first time? Oh, they loved it. They were just, yeah, pumped. Everyone was pumped, you know. And it, it changed people's perception because prior to that, um, bands that were around were just doing covers, often country and western stuff or basic rock and roll covers. So it suddenly... You know, there were other acts. I remember Isaac Gamma, um, Frank Gamma's father, was singing songs in Pigeon Jarrah. So he was a bit of a mentor and courageous. So it it suddenly people saw that it wasn't just for fun, for dancing, but you could have a voice, you could have your own story. You know? And uh, so that really opened opened up the floodgates for, for bands to emerge and sing sing their own songs, write their own songs. What was the writing process like with the band? Oh, it varied for for different songs. Sometimes we're all in a room together, everyone was chucking in ideas, and songs arose like late, like the language songs. Nudy Elsie Cool about when you're going to stop drinking was about four guys involved with that. Jilla uh, Jilla, another one in language about being sad and lonely. That was another one generated like that. But other ones, uh, often just Sammy would have a riff or something and I'd jump on it and say, keep that going, I'll make something out of it, you know. Um, you know, a lot, a lot were driven by me and I'd try and get input from the fellas. Um, a song like Waru, which is one of probably my favourite, co-writer George, I just had this riff and um, and an idea about fire or something or a chant about fire and, and, and George just, he just wrote out the words in his own language really quickly. We were sitting in the tour van in, in Wave Hill at the time and, um, yeah, and um, come up with it really quick. Once we got an idea, we, can, we seem to be able to finish it pretty quick. How, those days, so. how significant was local or community radio, Indigenous radio, in around the Northern Territory in the north to the music of Warumpi as well? Well, that was developing concurrently at the same time. Um, this is the thing. Um, Philip Batty, whom I met, I actually got his job. <laughs> the job he left uh, when I got to Papania, he was working on our station, but I took, took that up, and he went into Alice Springs, and we were an Aboriginal bloke by the name of John McCumber. They started doing Aboriginal broadcasting. I think initially it was on community station, and then they got half an hour on the ABC. <clears throat> and Philip was one of the ones who encouraged us. He said, you blokes should be writing songs in language. We need songs in language to play on the radio. So that was another spur that led us to come up with, you know, songs like Jalen or Puckerman. So that, that, that it was an explosion of media, Indigenous media all over the country at the same time, yeah. So with the band, because it, it, it lasts well for a long time with different members of the band, what was it that kept the band together? And we'll talk a little bit about your solo career in just a little while, but what was it that kept the band together for such a long time, um, and what was it that made the band dissipate in the end? Uh, <laughs> well, I think there was a passion there, um, certainly from my point of view, it was a, um, everything that I was passionate about it dovetailed beautifully with the warranty band. Um, we, could, we felt we had uh, a real purpose to... Um, Sing the truth about indigenous struggle in this country, and and uh, take it to the mainstream. And and George himself was very ambitious. You know, he he wanted to do it. He was he wanted even when Sammy and the others wanted to pull out for various family or cultural reasons, they wanted to stay home. Um, 
George and I kept it going with other other players for, for the last um, few years. Uh, but in the end, um, it just got really hard. Um, yeah, she, uh, George and I, we, we weren't getting along that well. Uh, there was he was going through some changes and uh, stuff, and and I was I'd started a solo career concurrently, and and. I felt I needed to call time on the Warrabee band at that point, mm. uh, but not not sort of without maybe doing something again in the future. So I called time on it. Um, George was a bit dark on me for a while, but he soon he soon thrived doing his own solo album, and he went overseas with Terry Sachs and stuff, and he did a one-man theatre show. So all these things he wouldn't have done <coughs> if we'd just stayed together doing a Warrabee band thing, you know. But, of course, <coughs> I didn't expect him to... Um, <laughs> I thought he'd be around for a lot longer, but the last performance we ever did was in 2006 as a band at the Dreaming Festival in mm. Queensland. But he was already, I could tell he was, something wasn't quite right within me and he was really struggling for energy and, and breath and stuff for the show. But And six months after that, he was diagnosed with cancer. But um, Yeah, I was hoping uh, that we might get back together and do, and do a project again, especially after having done He's, he, after he, if he, you know, had been able to spread his wings in a solo way and with other musos and that, then maybe we could reconvene. But that wasn't to happen, unfortunately. How good was it doing those reunions, though? Uh, it was great. I mean, um, there was one show we did in two thousand and four. We sort of officially retired in two thousand, but we played in two thousand and three or four. I think it was in Alice Springs about. 3,000 people in the Anzac Oval was part of the CLC's 30th anniversary. And and it was really, really strong performance. <clears throat> and I felt there was that was the first time I was encouraged to think that we might be able to do some stuff again, especially with Sammy in the band. I really needed Sammy to be in the band. I, mean, I thought he was integral with the, the musicianship and the energy and um, and uh, the strength of his, his, his leadership and stuff. And he's just... Because George was his brother-in-law, it, was, it made for a better situation uh, with Sammy and the band. Um, but it wasn't a B, so, yeah. Let's have a listen to some of the songs off the new album. We'll talk about your solo career. We'll play Broken Land. I'll come back, Neil, and we'll talk about that song and the album itself and how that came together. Once there was a people held paradise in their hands then invaders came and killed them all But now it's a broken man The country, it was plundered And greed drove its course Anything sacred and precious Destroyed without a thought Gleaming towers of glass and steel Rose along the coast Profits from the mines inland Were what they valued most Neil Murray, our guest. Neil, tell us about Broken Land. That's the song that you've chosen as being the single from the album. Uh, why that particular tune? Uh, I just felt it was uh, a strong uh, overall statement. Um, it came to me in a rush in 2021 when I got to Fremantle in the winter of 2021 from Broome, and I was a long way from my own area with Japaron Country in Western Victoria, and a region that has suffered like so many places from brutal colonisation in the past. And we talk about um, 
the leader, Yunapingu, who's recently deceased. Mm. If you go to his homeland, you hear you hear language everywhere. The ceremony is uh, intact and and all that, and white like places in the Western Desert. And you look around at areas in Southeast Australia, including my own area, and that's not there anymore. That's gone. So very much in a, in a First Nations sense, uh, the country is broken. And so I, I tried to get in there. But even so, having said that, this is still my home, so you've got to make the best of it somehow. And I've tried to put all that in the song uh, in a way to... It makes sense, I hope. I really enjoyed listening to the Yundamu song as well and just that feeling that we also need to hear some of the good stories and the positive stories about community as well. Absolutely, especially when Yundamu's been, um, uh, unfortunately, the, the target of a lot of negative media in recent times and, um, you know, with the, with the terrible, tragic uh, killing that happened there. So... Um, I've known Frank Barter for quite a while since I was working for Punya. We'd go to Yindamu Sports weekend every August. It coincided with his birthday, and there'd always been a bit of a celebration around at his house. And, and uh, we'd have a bit of a jam with whoever's around, and Frank would always wander out and barefoot and shabby with a conspiratorial grin and uh, his trumpet and begin to lay <laughs> plaintive lines over whatever we're doing. <laughs> it seemed to make magnificent sense. And, you know, he's been there for 50 years. And obviously he thinks the place is great. And I thought, I've got to get that in a song, you know, because him and his wife are strong supporters of Wolfie culture and aspirations and everything else. And and here's the story. I mean, to him, it, it's it, his life's been so enriched by uh, by his time there. And, uh, yeah, so I just thought, you know, most, most white fellows that go to live in these remote communities might last a year or two at the most, you know. But Frank's been there for 50 years. <laughs> 50 years. It can't be that bad. <laughs> In fact, it's magnificent to him. What he's, the way he speaks about uh, you know, the life and times of being with wealthy people there. So well, let's put that in a song. Let's honour that, you know. I love yeah. it. Um, Taxi is saying the Rumpries were the soundtrack of my Kimberley life in the early 90s. Uh, is it Warangari Radio Rock, says Dino? Sorry, uh, what was it? Warangari Radio? Uh, uh, that's a kind of hour, isn't it? Yeah, he just said that. Yeah, ro- yeah. It rocked, he reckons. that there was. Um, we've got some calls. Bill, hello, Bill. Oh, yes, good morning, Trev and Neil. Neil, I met you with Steve Pegram at the, um, uh, the recital centre when LJ Hill was there that night, and it was really lovely. And I, I used to be truck driver at LaGrange in the 70s and mechanic, but I love your song, wow. Blackfella, Whitefella. I think that's oh, a beautiful set, beautiful sentiments, and I think it's like a, a really lovely song for like for reconciliation. It's a beautiful, lovely words, and I love Jimmy Little's cover too. He did a lovely yes. cover. Yeah, I love it too. <laughs> well, well, Blackfellow Whitefellow is just what the elders were teaching us at the time. I, I, you know, in my time for Punya, it was clear that was their message. You know, <clears throat> what mattered was what sort of person you were. You know, not your skin colour or any any peripheral things like that. What sort of heart you had. You know, and that was uh, that was in the instruction I got from very many elders. Um, I remember meeting Isaac Yammer for the first time, and and then I, uh, we sang, we exchanged a couple of songs. He sang a song, and he said, "I want you to sing a song." And so I sang one. And then later on, when I was helping take gear into Jay Creek to set up for the band show, he touched my arm and he said, see that? That's nothing. That's only skin colour, he said to me. You've got the same heart like us. And it gave me 
such wonderful confidence to hear that. And I felt, right, I can write songs for this band. So, you know, this this is what the elders have... You know, it's a very simple message. Yeah. You know, I think people lose sight of it a lot, but... That's what I was going to ask you. Do you think that people do lose, lose track of the simplicity of reconciliation and the what can be achieved through reconciliation when it does happen and when it is happening all the time? Well, I think, I think you know, it's, I find that these days things are a bit more divisive. It used to be more inclusive, you know. Um, at least that was what the warranty ban was about and it's how we formed it. We couldn't have, we wouldn't have gone anywhere if that wasn't the attitude. I mm. mean, uh, it was to see what we could do together. Let's work together, you know, and uh, and I still believe that. And um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what the, reckon, the term reconciliation wasn't even bandied around when that when that song came out. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, later. it's what you do as an individual singer as well. Yeah. I'll just take a couple more calls. George, good morning. Oh, good day, Trevor, and uh, good day, Neil. Uh, you've been a in concert. Uh, a couple of quick questions that I'm always uh, puzzled about, uh, following on from the gentleman about uh, Blackfella, Whitefella, uh, about how the Blackfella, Whitefella tour with Midnight Oil came about and uh, how you found it travelling around those remote communities, because I reckon that they must have been about the first kind of big-name band that had ever gone through those kind of communities and kind of their reaction and your reaction to how it went down. And secondly, how did your uh, song Mile and Home get chosen for the 2000 Olympics closing ceremony with Christina I knew What was the process involved? Because uh, you know, I know with the Olympics stuff, it uh, can be a long, complicated process and uh, to get selected and to proceed through to the end. Neil? <laughs> yeah, right. Um the Maybe we'll start, thing, for the, uh, we'll start with the first question first, I guess, with Blackfella, Whitefella. Uh, with, the, with the tour? Yeah. Uh, well, um, we'd um, supported Midnight Oil the first time at uh, the Horton Pavilion in 1984, I remember. We did, we did a show with them. And then again later, uh, might have been 85, we were involved with a big concert at the um, Stop, um, Protect the Drain, Dane Tree, I think it was, uh, at... Sydney Entertainment Centre, and it was after that gig. I remember them asking us, uh, "How do you tour around the NT?" We said, "Oh, on old Utes," <laughs> and uh, and then they they first expressed interest. Well, we'd we'd be very interested to go out there, you know. And we just said, "Yeah, sure, we can help you, you know, and stuff." So I think it was later on in '86 um, that. I, their manager rang me and said, take down these dates, and they were all communities. And they said, uh, we want the Warren band to come on this with us, you know. And so, of course, we're all keen, and because uh, we're playing places we've often played ourselves, and and uh, that's how it came about. And, um, I mean, they had to uh, adjust themselves a bit because a lot of people didn't out there, and the communities weren't familiar with their music, and that was they often found that the... The crowd might wander off when they went on. So but for a while there, they wanted us to play after them. It's you know? gorgeous. We sort of thought, oh no, they're the headland, but headline band. We've got to play first, you know, sort of thing. Um, um, now, so, I, I might you know, do... they, they got so much out of it, as you've been well documented. But they really were inspired, and of course, it led to their Diesel and Dust album and so forth. But uh, it really gave us a, a lifeline at the time because we were in disarray and sort of resurrected us. So after that, we went on and did the Go, recorded the Go Bush album, 
And, of course, during the tour, we all started to play My Island Home live. We hadn't recorded it, but we were playing it live, and we asked Jim Magini to get up with, with us and play keyboard on it, organ, and he did every every time we played it. And, of course, he, then he played it on the recording as well. So there were some really nice friendships forged on that tour. Um, I got particularly... I'm still, you know, good friends with Jim Magini, and also we also got pretty close to Peter Gifford, the bass player at the time. Um, and just, the others, so, yeah. I'm just going to go to Ian. We might just skip the one with the Olympics, but I, it's a relevant right. question. Um, Ian, good morning. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Neil. How are you going? G'day. I'm all right. Yeah, mate, I'm just you know, listening. I'm just travelling out between Lockhart and Walbundry in the Riverina, and I heard you, and, mate, I just remember the young uh, fella from Southern Victoria, right? Moved up into the Territory doing Aboriginal housing, just finished my apprenticeship. I got exposed to the Warumpies and, and then yourself, Neil, and it just really, uh, as a young white fella who'd never been exposed to any Indigenous, the plight and the troubles that they're up against, it was really a good uh, introduction to and initiation into the whole plight. That was great music, which I still listen to today. That is such a good point, and for many <laughs> wow. young people, the same sort of thing, I think, Neil. Well, that's gratifying to hear. Mm. And thank you. Uh, and Michael will be our last caller. Hello, Michael. Hello. And uh, may I just say thank you very much to Neil for the music. Um, I have his album, and I, I kind of want to try and praise this quickly. I, I've just come back from overseas, and a couple of times when I talk to people and ask them if they've been to Australia, and they always have this idea about their everything out there is going to kill you or, you know. Um, I'm wondering what Neil thinks about um, the way sometimes Australian outback is presented to people. And I'm thinking, like, I remember people like the Bush Tucker Man and um, Harry, um, what's his name, and, and people like that who kind of go to the trouble of trying to display it with an honesty but then you've got, I don't want to running down, but see, see people like Steve Irwin and so who kind of talk about crocodiles and alligators and sharks and stuff like that. And I'm like, mate, we're not a theme park, you know? Neil, how, how do you think that the outback is perceived through music? Well, it's been um, something I've tried to... Um rail against perhaps in some ways. I mean, the term outback in a way can be perceived as negative. I mean, wherever you go, it's someone's home and it's dear to them and they, it's a paradise to them, you know. And, and once you meet locals, especially First Nation people that are local, you start to appreciate that rich, the deep connection that they have for, for various countries in inverted commas that this continent is comprised of. And, yeah, I agree. It's not all about... Um, you know, the wildlife is a theme park thing, but um, um, I find that there's now more programs on television that have a, a, a better approach. I think uh, a lot of the shows that um, Ernie Dingo's been doing, he brings a lot of that perspective into the places he goes to and talks to various people, First Nations people and others in the area, and gets a more rounded view of an area as... as Rather than glorifying, you know, trying to say, oh, this is the outback, it's the wilderness, it's wild, blah, blah, blah. 
they all they tend that sort of way of presenting sort of obscures from really seeing it properly, you know. I've so got, yeah, I would agree in principle. A know. couple of texts here saying I've just listened to Neil's new album on my blog. It's fantastic, <laughs> says Kaz. And um, inside tip with Neil, he likes a good cup of tea. Like a good cup of tea, Neil. Yes, black, no sugar. <laughs> uh, and a text here, I went, to, I went to Neil's dad's house in the late 80s with my dad. Alistair was so proud of Neil being up north, it says here. Wow, first time I've heard that. <laughs> um, Neil, he, he was very, very uh, reserved with any praise. Didn't get much praise from him. But they, all, all that generation were like that. Yeah. I don't think they wanted you to get a big head, you know. <laughs> so not say much. You're touring, I presume, with this album. Will you be heading around the country? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing uh, five band shows this month <clears throat> Sydney, Canberra, Milton. And then in Melbourne and Virigara, and then I'm off sort of <clears throat> doing solo stuff, heading north in May, up through Queensland and through the centre, up to the Kimberleys, back to Darwin <clears throat> and through the Gulf to the far north Queensland and drift back in September. It's kind of a lifestyle choice more than anything else. <laughs> it is, it's huge. <laughs> it's transcontinental drifting with the occasional gig. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's been great talking to you this morning. Thank you for giving us so much of your time. Thanks, Trevor. Neil Murray, singer, songwriter, uh, an incredible performer, and some of the music he's done has been so significant to Australia. <laughs>